You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Uh, I'm going to tell you about this uh, new podcast I think you should check out. It's called Breach. Here's the story. A podcast team started looking into uh, the biggest hack in history and ended up in the middle of the story. A mysterious voicemail. Disappearing files. Got personal. Breach is a new podcast that takes you inside the world's biggest hacks. They set out to answer questions about the hack of a huge American company and found themselves investigating a Russian conspiracy. Subscribe to Breach, that's B-R-E-A-C-H, in your podcast app right now. And speaking of right now, here's our show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Greetings. I heard uh, I heard from a listener, actually. I was, uh, I was over there at the uh, Society for News Design Conference, uh, where I taped a live show. Surprise, what that's going to be. But I met a, a faithful listener there, and they said uh, we sounded kind of down on the last intro, like we were like we were at the end of our tether. <laughs> really? Yeah. So yes. To, to bring it up, it up here. Come what on. What surprises me in that is that it doesn't always sound that way. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Maybe it does. I thought you were going to say that uh, they're a faithful listener and they have no idea uh, like how to separate us or tell us apart. Uh, that's implied. <laughs> that's implied. Very I mean, common complaint. Yes, I've been hearing <laughs> that a lot lately. Um, who's on the show this week? Uh, this week on the show is a writer named Will Mackin. Uh, he has a new book out of uh, short stories. It's called Bring Out the Dog. And we don't have a lot of people who write uh, fiction on this show. But uh, Will is a unique guest for the show. He was a uh, career Navy officer and then spent several years as a Navy SEAL. And these stories in Bring Out the Dog are like very, very lightly fictionalized accounts of his time as a Navy SEAL. And uh, it's it's a different one than we normally do. I had a uh, I had an incredible time talking to the guy. It was it was uh, it's one of my favorites in a long, long time. That's fun. I was working on a joke there about how I'm a former Navy SEAL and I just I couldn't land it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was a lot about why he, his original plan was to write nonfiction and then there were some legal reasons he couldn't do that and oh, there really? were some artistic reasons he couldn't do that so, so we talked about all that it stuff. is kind of nonfiction. Then. well you just have to listen and find out aaron max come on i don't have time for this tell me what happens <laughs> um if you're thinking about starting a serialized newsletter with twists turns 
and lightly fictionalized accounts of your own life. There's no better place to do it than at MailChimp. They make it easy. They got all kinds of products that make you an advanced emailer right out of the box. Thanks to MailChimp. One thing I should also mention, uh, we didn't do like the normal like, hello, hello. I just like, turned on the mics and we were testing them. But what he was saying was so interesting. We're just going to start the interview there. I can't I can't make sense of this podcast. There's no hello at the beginning. <laughs> and now here's Max with Will Mackin. All right. Will you just tell me what you had for breakfast? Yeah, let's see. I uh, was pretty nervous when I woke up, so I didn't eat anything for breakfast. I had a cappuccino, and that was it. And then I had a chicken sandwich at lunch. You were nervous for Morning Joe? I was a little nervous for Morning Joe. Have you been on TV before? I've never been on TV, and uh, yeah, it was an experience. You know, it was just like, I was telling my wife, it was just like 30 Rock. You know, we had a page that kind of walked us around with, with the blazer and the earpiece, and I got wired up and brought back onto the set. And it was over in a matter of, it felt like seconds. Yeah. Did it, was it like a kind of out-of-body experience? A little bit. I mean, I was able to dial in. You know, I've learned that over the years in the Navy, just be able to like, no matter how screwed up a situation is, when I had to actually perform, I can snap in at that moment. But then all bets are off as soon as it's over. And, you know, my <laughs> I'll trip over a quarter, you know, like just slapstick comedy uh, takes over at that point. <laughs> but you, you held your shit together for- I did for hold your, my shit together. For I your three and a half minutes? It was about three and a half minutes, yeah. It was <laughs> Herculean effort, but I did it. What's it like to try and uh, distill your life and life's work into three and a half minutes? Dude, it's impossible, man. I just had to, like, I did some media training last week with a marketing person at, at Random House, and she's great. I mean, she is very patient in helping me. But I'd start out, she'd be like, well, why did you write this book? You know, and then she'd turn it over to me to answer, and I'd give her like a 45-minute long answer. <laughs> just didn't answer the question at all. She's like, you might need to narrow that down a little. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of, I mean, it's just a performance again, almost like writing the story, but now you're writing a much shorter, a shorter story and trying to connect the dots for yeah. people. And it's not giving the whole picture at all. I mean, it's just kind of scraping the surface. Well, you're in the, uh, you're in the right format now. Yeah, here we go. This is the land of 45 minute I answers. I blabber on. Just go, man. <laughs> just go. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have you on and, and, uh, well, I don't have any interest in making this too much about myself at all I, I feel some urge to uh disclaim how little i know about what life in the armed forces is like mm -hmm. so just a caveat here it's like i'm gonna ask you some dumb questions yeah no feel free man um, the dumber the better <laughs> the dumber the better. <laughs> we are man we are, this is gonna work out it's all cylinders are firing <laughs> if you're if you're into uh dumber the better you've you've uh, come to the right place um can you tell me a little bit about how you came to join the military and maybe tell me a little bit about that time in your life? Sure. So I was in high school. I wasn't doing very well. Actually, I was a senior in high school. And um, I went out on a date to the movies and we saw Top Gun. And, uh, and that was it, man. <laughs> I mean, it sounds really cheesy, but I had no direction. And all my friends were going off to college and I was like, what am I going to do? Where were you living? In New Jersey, just uh, south of Atlantic City. And I, I remember watching that movie and seeing like the fight scenes and everything and thinking like, that's what I got to do. And it, seriously, that propelled me. I went from 
being a very mediocre student in high school to get my shit together. I went to a local college in Southern New Jersey and, uh, you know, aced all my classes through sophomore year and then transferred to a larger school, which had an ROTC unit. So I was able to get an ROTC scholarship, which is the first step to going to flight school. And then I studied at University of Colorado. I was ROTC there, graduated and went to flight school. And um, I flew for, I was in the Navy 23 some years. About half that time I flew. The other half of the time I was attached to a special operations team and I was a what's called a joint terminal attack controller. So I controlled airstrikes from a position on the ground. So I was attached to a SEAL team. That's what the stories in the book are based from. In a nutshell, that's kind of my military career. Were you thinking about writing during that time? I was. I, I um, When I was competing for the ROTC scholarship, I majored in physics because I knew that gave me a competitive edge. But as soon as I got the scholarship, I switched to English because that was my true passion. I wanted to read. I wanted to write. I knew that at a very young age, but I didn't think it would ever become something that I could do. So I kept up with it only because it kind of maintained my sanity. Throughout my time in the Navy, I kept a journal. And um, I like to tell myself, you know, when I had bad Navy days, those were actually good writing days. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, What was a bad Navy day? Oh, God, a bad Navy day would be just making a fool out of myself in the plane, just making mistakes, bad decisions, people who work for me getting in trouble, not being able, a lot of times there are things that are just completely out of my control that would go wrong, but I'd be responsible for them. And so I'd have to answer, figure out what happened, develop a plan to rectify it, you know, chew ass as necessary and get back to business. Those are the times I really didn't like. I liked it when, obviously everybody does, but when things were working well, when, uh, you know, I had people who really wanted to be there, who really wanted to you know, get the mission done, basically. That's what I found when I was in the SEAL team. Everybody who was there, one thing they shared is that they were all very dedicated to just showing up every day and doing the best they could. So disciplinary problems, all the kind of like minutia and horseshit that you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis in the Navy went by the wayside. And it was just like, all right, let's get shit done. And it was kind of liberating and addicting. How close did those first years in the military, how close did they like hew to what you would imagine they would be? Not at all. You know, I was disabused of the Top Gun dream very quickly because when I was uh, in ROTC, you know, I was still able to have that dream that, okay, I can go fly, I can be Maverick, I could be this, you know, rebel and, uh, <laughs> and fly the jet however I want. But flight school changed that real quick because flight school was – Difficult, first of all, but not in a traditional sense where like if you, you know, if you work harder, you see results. There was a talent aspect involved in flying and kind of keeping track of what's going on, what we call in the military situational awareness. So when you're flying, you know, you have to have some innate ability to kind of think ahead and adapt and change and all these things. And some days it just didn't work for me, Uh, especially in flight school. It's kind of learning how to do that. I remember... The very first events you do in flight school are all simulator-based, and they're all catastrophes. They're all scenarios (laughs) that are, you start out on the ground, and the plane catches on fire when you start the engine. You know, the next time you'll start, the engine will work fine. You taxi out, you get a fire, you know, as you're taxiing, or you get, you know, an electrical failure or something else will go wrong. 
it seemed like at every stage of an evolution, the person controlling the, the simulator could inject something horrible, you know? And so you had to react to it and there were procedures to follow. And if you did something wrong, you got poor grades and you have to redo it. So the first time I actually flew a plane, a real plane and took off, you know, I expected the wings to fall off. I expected it to catch on fire. I expected to have to bail out at like 200 feet. And you take off and it's like the most peaceful thing in the world. Just the plane's flying and it's smooth and easy and everything works and the instructor's not screaming at you. And, and, and that was kind of an adjustment. It's like, okay, there's the reality of it and there's what they want to prepare you for. But the kind of the anxiety of what, what I had to be prepared for always kind of trumped the fun part of it. So there was never, like very rarely was I able to just kind of look outside and be like, yeah, man, this is really cool. I'm sort of surprised to hear you say that because there's so many moments in the book where it seems like that's what the soldiers are doing. It's like there's some sight or scene or little detail that seems stuck in their head that they're coming back to and back to it. I, I want to talk more about the book, but just to stay in this time for a second, help me understand a little bit more what the role of writing and keeping that journal played for you during that time. Like was that the outlet for that? anxiety? I think a little bit, but it was also more of like, I felt like I was kind of playing a part the entire time I was in the Navy. Not that it wasn't genuine. It's just that the type of personality I had to be, you know, I'm more of a type B person naturally. I just, you know, kind of want to be left alone. I want to do my own thing. I don't really want to work with others. <laughs> and so uh, the Navy, of course, is different. Like in order, and I was I was an officer, so I had I was in charge. I had people working for me, and I had there was an expectation, you know, that I had to, of course, have their best interest in mind. Which I enjoyed that part. I and you know enjoyed working with people, working for people, making their lives better. That was part of the job that I really grew to like that I didn't expect I was going to like. But the the journal kind of gave me an outlet for just thoughts that I guess weren't sanctioned by the Navy. You know, it's not that there's anything like the thought police. It's just things that I didn't want to share with my peers necessarily, definitely not my bosses or definitely not the people who are working for me, who for each set I had to project a different image, it seemed mm-hmm. like, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So the book was more just like natural, like here's what I'm thinking type of thing. And did you imagine that something more would come out of it? Not at all. No, it was just, you know, I thought maybe years from now my grandkids would read it. My grandfather actually kept something of a journal when he was deploying to, he was a construction battalion engineer. And so he built runways in Northern Africa. And then he went to Okinawa for the Battle of Okinawa so he had a really interesting journey. And most of it, though, was like, I don't know if he wrote it down or if it was just oral history. It's probably he was just telling stories. It's so ingrained. But I kind of thought of it as that sort of thing. Like those stories that he told me really stuck with me. And I thought, well, maybe my grandkids will get something out of this. <laughs> what caused you to leave the Navy and join the Special Forces? How did that transition happen? Well, I was still in the Navy when it happened. So there's a component of the Navy that is special operations. No, okay, so like that was like dumb question number one. No, no, yeah, you're good, man. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know it either. When I was in the normal part of the Navy, 
we actually had a, and this was unheard of at the time, but the war in Afghanistan, it was about a year and a half old, it was early 2003, and the Navy runs on a very set schedule that's projected years in advance, and it's all based on refueling aircraft carriers. So the aircraft carriers are nuclear-powered, their fuel has a shelf life, literally, and so they have to replace all the uranium rods in the reactor every so often. And of so, course, sure. Yeah, and so based on that, <laughs> oh, I know all I'm about talking that. like I understand this, but <laughs> the thing is, like, our schedule was so laid out, when you joined a squadron and you're there for three years, you know exactly when the days you're going to deploy, the days you're going to be home, the days you're going to do workups, which is training for deployment. It's all laid out, like three, four, five years in advance. And so when, you, when the war in Afghanistan started, we had this set schedule. We had years, you know, this is what we're going to do. And we got a phone call from, turns out it was um, Joint Special Operations Command in Fort Bragg. They're like the General McChrystal and General McRaven, if those names ring any bells. Sure. These are the guys who are in charge of, you know, this whole kind of black ops section of the military. It wasn't them personally calling, but, you know, somebody who worked for them was like, hey, you guys, I don't know what your schedule is right now, but you need to be in Bagram, Afghanistan in three weeks. And you don't have any choice? No. No, it was just, I mean, it was sanctioned through all our leadership. But by the time we found out about it, we had three weeks to prepare and be there. Why did you, why were you the one who was picked? We were just, we were Who's the we? furthest ones out from deployment. So it was less of a, a red ass for us to do it. Can you tell me who we is? Uh, we was, it was just a squadron, a EA-6B. Um, this is a radar jammer, carrier-based aircraft. The squadron was VAQ-142, the Gray Wolves. And, and how many people? Like 120, 140. All right. And so you guys were the furthest away from getting deployed again. Correct. So they called you up. Correct. So it was the least impact to the schedule if we went. So we had recently come back from deployment. Right. And now we're going again. <laughs> right, right. One way of saying uh, the furthest away from the next deployment is closest to the last deployment. But correct. So you had three weeks? Three weeks. And in that time, we had to get everybody pistol-qualled. And that was the that was the hardest thing to do. Like, <laughs> Sorry, everybody what? <laughs> pistol-qualified. Pistol-qualified. Yeah, right. they had to be able to shoot a weapon. Okay. Which sounds probably sounds ridiculous to you, but not everybody in the military, you know, goes to the range and shoots. They're just, especially in the aviation world, the, the majority of people are mechanics. They work on the aircraft. You know, they're not out on the range doing target practice. What, what was in your journal the night you get that phone call? I was excited. I was really, because, you know, the schedule that's laid out, it becomes monotonous. Everybody does the same thing, and there's very little difference from deployment to deployment. And the mission was not very exciting, honestly. It was just doing orbits, flipping switches. And we didn't even know exactly what we were going to do when they called us. They just said, have this particular type of equipment ready and be able to do this particular task, mm -hmm. which we practiced. And then once we got over there, they brought us into this tent and explained to us what we were doing. And what were you doing? I can't tell you. But Can yeah, you tell they, me when that was? It was uh, 2003. It was the winter of 2003 in Bagram, Afghanistan. Okay. And um, so we were working directly for this team, and I was involved in the planning for the missions. Not every <clears throat> one of the aviators were like, you know, we all have ground jobs. Some guys are in charge of maintenance, some are in operations and scheduling. 
And I happened to be one of the guys who planned missions. And so I would work with these guys in their secret tent, cook up whatever we were doing. And so I built a relationship with them. And that's how I found out about the Special Operations Wing of the Navy. And they asked me to come interview. And then, and then the kind of ball rolled from there. What are those interviews like? Uh, it was kind of, it's just like, well, there is some weird stuff, I guess, thrown in. But the the first one's very, almost corporate. It's, you know, have you, uh, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And give us some examples. And, you know, what would you do if, or if you could fight anybody, who would you fight and why? I guess that was a weird one. But, and then you get, well, first it's like the senior leadership, the officers. And then you get the senior enlisted, and that's a whole different ballgame. And those guys, it's just gloves off, and they're just... They're trying to see if they can get along with you. If First of all, if they can piss you off. And if they do piss you off, are you a good sport about it or are you a douche? If you're a douche, then you're done. <laughs> if you can joke around about them and give it back to them, then they're like, okay, we'll, we'll give this guy a chance. And you could do that? I did at the time, yeah. <laughs> I did. It was, uh, I mean, for me at that point, it was like all or nothing. I really wanted to do it. And I felt like I could be myself. You know, they, nobody told me that specifically nobody said like hey everything you've learned in navy throw that shit out and just you know be yourself and tell us what you really think i just i thought well if i'm ever going to do it i'll do it now and see if it works is that what that division is known for like stripping away the kind of formality and rules of the place yeah yeah it's all first name basis no matter what your rank is really what carries weight is what you've done and so the guys that have missions that have you know the the big medals those guys have the cachet, they have the, they could be very junior, but if they've done some crazy stuff, they've pulled it off and they're tactically sound and proficient and smart, their voice is amplified beyond their rank. And that was more your speed? It was more my speed because it was more real, it seemed. It was more of like um, a meritocracy, right? It was heavily skewed towards the guys who were you know, the assaulters, obviously, because that's what the whole, that that was like the raison d'etre, you know, to, for the place. But if you proved yourself in any, any way, like you could stay there and be comfortable there and work there. And it was fun, really. I mean, it was just unpredictable. You get thrown in some situation, you had to figure it out and you're working with people who want to do it. And, and then it just became exhausting. <laughs> what changed? For me, it was just the constantly having to uh, rally myself like every day because like I told you, you know, that's not my natural state. And it got to the point where I almost couldn't do it anymore. And there were things that happened too, things that a lot of things in the book are true. And there really wasn't time to reflect when things went wrong. You know, you almost had to move on to the next thing immediately. And so I think that accumulated after a while and kind of just, threw me, not threw me off the rails in a way that I was like insane or anything, but just to the point where I wasn't having as much fun anymore. Help me understand the stakes of what we're talking about. Like what's something that could go wrong? What's something that went wrong? All right. For, for example, like, um, there was one time when Somali pirates hijacked, a, a yacht. It had four missionaries in it. They were traveling south through the Gulf of Aden from Yemen and we went out to try to rescue these people. And what happened was right before we were able to effect a rescue, the pirates shot everybody on the boat, like all four 
people were killed instantly. And there were a lot of things that went wrong in that. <clears throat> and I played a part in some of that. What was your part? My part was mainly just setting up the the communications, setting up the uh, operational scheme, if you will. So what we do in a situation like that is like we don't have all the assets necessary to support that type of an operation. So we have to borrow kind of the Navy's larger toys, aircraft carriers, destroyers. And um, my job is to to be the liaison between the team and like the normal Navy leadership and explain what we need and why we need it. And then since they're in charge of these things, the aircraft carriers and the destroyers, we kind of come out there and, you know, take over for a little while. So part of my job was to, to kind of smooth that over with the people who were, you know, in charge, air quotes. Could you tell them why? Yeah, at that point, yes. Like we arrive and then we can kind of get down to business. And there's only a few people, like the very top of the leadership that get the full picture. Everybody else is just told like, all right, make sure this helicopter's ready to go at this time and whatever else. And so what was your piece of what went wrong on, on the yacht? Uh, on that rescue mission, there were just a lot of drop balls, it seemed like. Like the... Uh, we didn't test it out well enough. We didn't have a good enough plan for getting our assault ships on and off the carrier. There were kind of just in the smooth running of the operation, like trying to think it all the way through from start to finish, what pieces need to move where didn't happen the way it probably should have it, to get it done quicker. We gave the, the problem was we just gave the pirates too much time to think about it and think about how they'd react. Mm-hmm. And what happens when a mission goes wrong like that? Well, usually, kind of in keeping with the spirit of the place, like it's very open and honest. So everybody gets together and they do a debrief and they, you know, there's no pulled punches. Sometimes it'll get contentious, but normally, you know, everybody tries to keep it on the professional side, tries not to have hurt feelings and all that good stuff. It's just, hey, look, this is what happened. We need to fix it. We need to get better. And, uh, and how would you process it? You know, as best I could, try to take that stuff on board. You know, the funny thing is, though, you don't get a, usually you don't get a second chance at that stuff. So it's like, you know, how many times are you going to, you know, do a halo jump in to rescue some people on a <laughs> on a yacht? You know, it's happened a couple times. But the thing is, like, so how do I process that? It, I try to process it like everybody else, like a professional, just kind of take it probably take more on than what they're telling me because I know even though it's open and honest and this and that, I'm going to hold some punches, right? So I think they're probably doing the same thing and everyone's their own worst critic. And so I take what criticism I would give myself and try to roll that in mm -hmm. to the next thing. And you were saying earlier that at some point that just got to be too much? Yeah, that just the you know, a lot of a lot of people were being killed on both sides and it just gets heavy after a while. It's just not you know, there there was a fun element to it initially. Just like, wow, I don't believe that we're doing this type of stuff because it's very not unruly, it's just 
nothing like I thought would ever happen. Most of my experience like in the Navy was during peacetime mm-hmm. and war and combat was an abstraction. It's just something that we pretended to do. And now that we're actually doing it, you know, like 2002 and beyond, the reality of it started to set in. How many deployments did you do? I did five with the SEAL team, and I did a few before that that didn't, I don't really count because they were kind of administrative. But the the Navy deploys no matter what, peacetime, wartime, you know, as a carrier aviator, like you deploy with your squadron on the carrier whenever the carrier goes out. Right. And carriers go out peacetime, wartime. So those are deployments as well. But as far as like on the ground combat deployments, I did five. And how long were they? The first one was a year and then between four and six months for the others. A year? Mm-hmm. I did a year in Iraq in uh, 2006, 2007. Why was it so long? Uh, because they needed people, and uh, Army guys were doing 18 months. So a year, and that, it actually worked out to be like 10 months because there was training on the front end, and there was like, they called it decompression on the back end. What what happens during decompression? Uh, the chaplain comes in and talks to you and tells you, you know, horror stories <laughs> no they, he comes in and he'll talk to you the sykes we called them fuzzy bunnies they would come in and talk to you tell you you know like all the resources and it's a, a good thing right they say hey if you have trouble these are the places you can reach out to if you feel these symptoms make sure you talk to somebody you know because there's a big problem with suicide and um so that the decompression phase is kind of the military's way of letting you not blow off steam necessarily, but just not be in that environment, but not yet be home. So we'd be in Kuwait or another place and just kind of hang out for a week or two and get our bearings again before. So it wasn't just like, you know, we're doing night raids one night and like three nights later we're at home at a soccer game or Mm -hmm. something. You know, there'd be a couple weeks in between where we could just sit in a room and watch movies or something. I feel like most people when they think of the SEAL team just think of like the Bin Laden raid maybe. Mm. But what, what were the kind of things that you were doing for those five deployments? So for those, I was, you know, a joint terminal attack controller, like I said. So I was running airstrikes and I would do it from behind the desk in our operations center or other nights I would go out with the team if they needed an extra person. So it was kind of a mix. Um, but our mission was night raids. So the way the targeting cycle worked. It was a 24-hour cycle. We'd wake up, you know, about sunset, go in, find out what the intelligence picture was for that day. They would have a prioritized list. We were going after people called high-value targets, and they would be prioritized. And so we'd pick the best case scenario and go out to where we thought that person was and uh, either kill or capture that person and then you know, if we captured them, bring them back. And we'd collect intelligence from the site, bring it back, analyze it, and that would lead to the next target the next night. And it just repeated itself. Yeah, there's a uh, point in that first story, I think, where you talk about that cycle and, like, the last stage of each mission is intelligence, which mm-hmm. is also the first stage of the next one. And it just yeah. sort of never ends. Yeah. Does it become routine? Like, does it become normal? Well, the the uh, routine does, but what happens every night doesn't. It's you kind of learn like 
the steps of what should take place. And, and that's a good thing because then you get kind of all the ducks in a row before you go out. Like you plan the route. You plan whatever close air support's going to be overhead. You plan whatever backup is going to, you know, arrive if things really go bad. And so all these steps are in place. So that routine is good. But then the the mission itself, I don't know if there were any two that were ever the same. I mean, there were some that were really boring that were, you know, the guy who we were, who we were after wasn't there and it was just turned out to be like normal people. We wake them all up and, you know, <laughs> and then leave. Um <clears throat> But other nights it would be, you know, we thought there were fewer people there and there'd be more and it turned out to be a bigger deal than we thought. So up to a point it was routine and then it would become kind of like this wide open thing. Mm-hmm. And then once that was over, you kind of go back to routine. Were you writing that whole time? No, I wasn't writing exactly. I was taking notes. There were things I didn't want to forget. I mean, every night was very surreal because we're wearing night vision And, you know, you've seen the images probably on YouTube or on the news, the green kind of image, but it doesn't really do it justice because you can, through your peripheral vision, you can see the shadows, uh, the silhouettes, and it all kind of melds together at some point. Um, The image that you're presented on the screen is heat and it's low level light, it's ultraviolet light, and it's like a, a world apart. So just kind of the disconnect there between, like, if I'm looking at a guy that I know, you know, and I know well, I know what he looks like in daylight, I know his name, his kids' names, I know where he's from, but to see him on night vision, it's like a different person. It's almost like the comic book hero version of the dude, and it's thermal, you know, but I know him, how he looks like in daylight, and I know what his silhouette looks like, it's three different things. So, you know, the difference between those things, like the sounds... We all wore headsets, and we had radios, we had satellite, and we had line of sight. Satellite radio had a delay. It would actually go up to the satellites and bounce back down. And so I would hear somebody talk. Like someone standing next to you. Right. Someone would talk into the mic, right? They'd be transmitting. They'd be like, you know, whisper something. It would go up to the satellite, and like three seconds later, I would hear it, and it would sound different, but it would be the same voice and the same words. So there was that kind of disconnect to... And some of the sounds and the smells were unexpected. Airstrikes in particular, like the, we used to get the gunship a lot, and it had a howitzer cannon in it. And when it would fire the cannon, the noise that reached us, it sounded just like luggage, like coming down off the slide and banging into the bottom of the uh, carousel. It sounded like, like whack, like that. And then the image of it was like this blue flaming thing, like something out of, you know, Cinderella. Just kind of coming down. So just a lot of weird things that I didn't want to forget. I would write down on my arm. and uh, You'd write down on your arm like you'd, you'd see the gunship uh, and just be like, it's like uh, like uh, luggage coming down a carousel. <laughs> write it on your arm in the middle of the mission? Well, like, okay, and, uh, for example, like one night we were walking through the desert in Iraq, and uh, Iraq had these kind of like an ocean where trash collects, you know, the currents kind of, like intersect and like there'll be garbage pits. Yeah. There'll be like a, you know, a three mile wide Island of milk cartons or something like in the middle of the Iraqi desert, there'd be these giant tangles of barbed wire from leftover from the, the Iran Iraq war, our first war with Iraq and now the current war. Right. So all these things are like the wind is blowing them all together. We came to one and uh, we had a drone overhead and the drone had a, 
a spotlight on it. It was like, uh, we called it Sparkle. It was uh, ultraviolet light. And they would drop it on hazards as we approached. Like, hey, this is in your way. There'd be no communication. The pilot of the drone is actually in New Mexico or Nevada. And uh, the way he would warn us, he or she, he'd just drop this light down. If it was something that, you know, hey, just watch out for this. Watch out for that giant pile of barbed wire. From- <laughs> yeah. So one night we were walking past this one. Uh, it was kind of off in the distance and this thing dropped down. And it was just like I said, like the magic that turned Cinderella into a princess. It's all sparkly and looks beautiful. And like the wind, as we get closer to this thing, you hear the wind blowing through it. It's probably like two stories high, just this ma- tangle of barbed wire. And it sounded like a UFO, like the noise that the wind was making going through it. And it was shaped like a swan. And so I just wrote, like I took my grease pencil out and I wrote swan on, on the inside of my arm. And that was, that was one you know, time that I actually did that. I just didn't have time to stop, take out a notebook and a pencil and actually write a coherent thought down. <laughs> did other people notice? You know, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't think anybody would have been upset about it. But it was just things I didn't want to forget, you know. And I know everybody else had them. Like we would... They'd talk about things that, you know, I didn't necessarily notice outside of mission stuff. I mean, we'd just be sitting around eating, you know, at the chow hall or whatever, and these weird things would come up. Hey, did you, you know, did you see, like, one night we were, it was in Iraq again, and we were walking into a town called Hit from the west. It was just, like, walking across the bottom of the ocean, just, you know, like, kind of wavy sand, and there was a guy walking the other way, like a Bedouin just a dude like out in the middle of the night walking and he came past us probably like 30 yards away and we had to get somewhere so we we were walking you know everybody was looking at him and some guys like we had sparkle on our rifles and guys would spot the dude like hey watch out for this guy so you'd see him coming like they would highlight him it's like shining a flashlight on him but only he can't see it so you see him coming towards you and each guy you know as the formation stretches out single file like a guy will sparkle him, and then two guys later will sparkle him. So you kind of see how it's converging. And by the time he passed me, he was really he was really close, you know. And it was amazing that he didn't he either didn't hear us or he didn't care. He just kept walking. And so that was another thing that you know we talked about. But it didn't come up that night. It was like a few nights later, you know, because of the pace of things. Like you get back, you'd have to debrief, you'd have to put all your stuff away, you'd have to get ready for the next night. And then go to bed and then get up and do it again. And so sometimes it would be like two, three days later, you'd be sitting down eating with somebody and like, did you see the dude walking (laughs) at 2 a.m. just walking, you know, in the desert? Yeah, I remember that. You know, so uh, I know other people thought it was weird. I don't know if they were writing this stuff down. But when when you were writing down Swan on your arm in Greece, like what, uh... Was there a plan? Did you think you were going to use it later? What, what did you want to remember it for? I just, things happen so quickly that, say somebody didn't bring up the fact that we passed that guy, you know, three nights later. I would, probably would have never remembered it. And so after, I, would, I didn't start doing that immediately. It, it was just, after it became apparent that things were so strange they were not going to repeat themselves Mm -hmm. if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so there was always something different and weirder and uh, when I realized like hey there's almost like I'm not going to get used to this I need to try to keep track of it so 
I just remember how freaky it was. Right. Yeah. But it, I mean, I guess maybe a more direct way of asking what I'm trying to ask is like, were you saving those memories for yourself or for your grandkids? Or, oh, I see. Or had you started to have an inkling that like you would want to share them with more people? It was part of the journal. It was part of the, I guess, for posterity, you know, for the grandkids to take a look at or more for more for me almost at that point because it just it seemed to be like slipping away from me even as it was happening. Mm-hmm. So when did you decide that you wanted to write something for an audience other than your grandkids? Well, when I left the, the SEAL team in uh, 2011, I went to teach ROTC at University of New Mexico. Life slowed way down, and I just I missed the war. I missed the camaraderie. I missed my teammates. I missed... I miss the feeling of being opposed and the focus that it gave me and just sitting, you know, in my office at the University of Mexico, you know, in the land of make-believe, it kind of crystallized all that stuff. And I just, you know, I had the notes and I had some basic ideas of a narrative, things that I would tell myself over and over that kind of turned into either stories or parts of the stories that are in the book. So you finished your service in 2011. Was there some catalyst for that, like an event? What? Why did you um, leave the SEAL team? I just got burnt out. I mean, it was every day. They, they were shorthanded. Something came up. And if I turned things down, I felt like a shitbag because I, I wasn't doing my part. And, you know, it got to a critical point there with the families. Just I was never around. And uh, it's just difficult to be a dad in, in those situations, to be a good one. Was it a hard decision? It was in ways because I was addicted. I did like the adrenaline. I loved working with the men and women I worked with. And it was like no no job I will ever have again. So, yeah, there was no small amount of regret leaving. But not everybody can do it forever. You know, and a guy who was there probably 12 years, sat me down and told me that. He's like, dude, not a, you just can't keep going. Like, what's the end state here? You just stay here forever. And uh, I had this opportunity to go to New Mexico. My kids were still young. I could, you know, there's still time to kind of be a part of their lives. And uh, so I took that opportunity. Was it hard to leave? It was harder than I thought. It was, it was a relief initially because I was no longer on the schedule. I was no longer on the watch bill. I didn't have to carry a beeper. I wasn't, it's like, you can't relax. You can't have a beer. You can't, you know, because you might get called and you have to go and, and do something. You can't hang out with friends because, you know, the same reasons. So not having that was initially a huge relief. But then having to deal with the monotony of running what was purely a bureaucratic <laughs> position, it started to get to me. If it weren't for the students who were awesome, then that job would have probably run me into the ground. <laughs> There's maybe a more like uh, sensitive way to ask this, but were you scared of uh, PTSD? I was. F- yeah, I don't know if it was fear of it. I mean, that's definitely something that's come up and I've thought about, you know, I don't think I have it. I know I, I probably obsess about things more than most people, but compared to, you know, what other people saw, you know, I just think that there's 
a bar that I'm well below in that area. So what, um, why do this as fiction and not nonfiction? Like why were, were short stories where you gravitated? Initially I didn't. I wanted to write nonfiction and I started writing nonfiction. And I, the reason I did that was, first of all, I felt like other people did all the hard work and kind of who was I to take liberties. And the second reason was I just felt an obligation to the guys that I'd served with, the, the men and women that I'd served with, not to misrepresent them or what they'd been through or what it had meant to them or how they felt about it. And I kept kind of piling these requirements onto myself like, well, if I present this particular event in this light, this guy's going to get his feelings hurt. Or I don't know how this guy's family will feel about me talking about this. And it became debilitating, all of those restrictions. I kind of kept layering on myself. And so I was talking to George Saunders at one point about this, and I was like, man, I don't know if this book is going to (laughs) happen. I'm just really, I'm stuck. And he pointed out to me, he's like, you know, you're putting these restrictions on yourself because, you know, it, it just puts this perfect book off in the in the never to reach future. And so, you know, if you remove those and you start maybe fictionalizing things and getting it added a different way, maybe that'll work for you. Uh, what? <laughs> How is George Saunders the person giving you our writing advice? Oh, um, yeah, that's a good story too. Well, I, I met George in 1998 at a writing seminar in St. Petersburg, Russia. Ah, so you'd been thinking about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd been been thinking about writing because I, you know, I liked writing and I liked reading and what I was doing in the Navy had absolutely nothing to do about it. And so, you know, I saw that almost as like taking another English class just Mm -hmm. being around people who care about it was. It was like while while you were on break? Refreshing. Yeah. I took leave and I went and did this. And, you know, I didn't necessarily think like, I want to publish a book or I want to write stories. I had to write stories to get into the class. And I, you know, I'd taken a fiction writing class in my sophomore year in college. So I threw something together, but really it was just like, I wanted to take a break from like the operational, like military mindset and just kind of immerse myself in people who cared about, you know, writing and more artistic pursuits, I guess. And Saunders was one of the teachers? Yeah. And then you guys just kept in touch? Yeah. You know, we kind of hit it off. You know, his background is uh, he didn't come to writing, you know, through MFA directly. He went out and did a bunch of other things, worked in the oil fields, worked in a slaughterhouse, a bunch of really random jobs. Yeah, he's been on the show. We talked about uh, his, like, first writing job was, like, doing, like, technical writing for, like, uh, technology. For some sort of... In Rochester, I think. Yeah, Rochester. Yeah. So we, we had this kind of similar, I guess, approach where we we were actually doing something other than writing, but still wanted to write. And so we became pretty good friends and just stayed in touch over the years. Would you send him your stuff? Yeah. I sent him the story that wound up in the New Yorker, Catacoupin, and he and I worked back and forth on that for a while. And he was the one who helped you realize that this stuff didn't have to be nonfiction. Yeah. You know, because it just, I mean, like the, kind of like the the whole idea of the team mindset and 
not wanting to screw anybody over, not wanting to reveal anything I shouldn't, not wanting to disrespect or misrepresent or take liberties, all that stuff kind of folded into it. And fiction just, you know, it seems like an easy answer now in hindsight. But at the time, it was just like, I can't write fiction because I don't want to make stuff up and take all this real stuff that people sacrificed their lives for and turn it into something make-believe. I is kind of how I looked at it. Mm-hmm. And I had to find my way around that. How'd you do that? Because, you know, when I when I went into the fictional realm and I started to imagine things made more sense. I was able to, like, for example, the story about crossing the River No Name, there were a lot of things that intersected with that. Like the, um, there was a person, a, a seal that was lost on a river crossing, first of all. So I knew of that guy. I knew that story. And it occurred to me, you know, many times because we operated in the same area and the same river. Never crossed it, but regardless, that's one piece of it. The other piece of it was, you know, I read Isaac Babel. Saunders introduced me to Babel when I was in St. Petersburg that time. And, you know, I read all those stories many times over. Red Cavalry. One of the stories is crossing the river Zubrick. I think it's how it's pronounced. And in that story, there's a guy halfway across that falls in. He's on a horseback and he falls in and he takes in vain the mother of, uh, or takes the mother of God's name in vain, something like that is the line. And then switch back to reality, 2009, we're on a mission in Afghanistan. We're crossing a irrigated field and a guy falls into an irrigation ditch. And as he's falling, he screams out, I forget what the cuss word was, but it reminded me exactly of that bottle story, right? And so that was the other part of it. And the third part of it, it was the miracle thing. Like I myself fell into an irrigation ditch and I was submerged and I was floating down river with all this heavy shit on. And I had a bit of a panic attack as that was happening. And I remember thinking like, I need a miracle. (laughs) And that, okay, and then the last part, was when I was in high school, we played a, a state championship game and we were behind and we wound up winning on the last play. That was a trick play, uh, or at least that's how I remember it. If anybody from Ocean City High School, 1983, <laughs> has a clearer picture of that, please let me know. But, and I remember though, there was, there was a score that won us the game that happened unexpectedly and I think it was a trick play. But I remember looking down the field, watching the guy run, and he was obviously going to score. And it was a cloudy day, and the sun like came down onto the end zone, and it looked like just like you know I described in the story. It looked like a miracle was happening. So all like that's how like all those things kind of came together. And I couldn't do that in nonfiction. Like the only way I could connect those dots and make it seem like all right, this is what I think about all these random things is through fiction. It's kind of amazing to me that uh, you were sort of seeing those moments and seeing the world that way even when you were in high school, like on a football field. Yeah. And the thing you would notice is the sun hitting the guys. He's scoring a touchdown. Yeah. Well, I wasn't playing, so I had to do something. <laughs> I was on the bench. <laughs> so fiction allowed you to combine all these different elements and it allowed you to get out of thinking about whose feelings you might hurt. Right. I'm not quite sure exactly how to ask this, so I'll just try, but 
did it allow these stories to feel like more real in some way? I mean, they're so clearly based in your experience. And it feels as though they couldn't have been written without living the life that you lived. And so I wonder whether they feel more true to you than your nonfiction might have in some way. I think, yes, I think they do. And the reason it feels more true to me is because all like my psychoses are in there. And so it's through that lens almost. And I hope it resonates with other guys that, you know, I think it does. I haven't heard, I, I hear some things back and it's positive, but you know, I wonder, but regardless, I think you're right. Like there was the truth I was after initially in nonfiction was kind of an agreed upon not a proved truth, but more of like an almost you can't nail it down type of truth because it was predicated on trying to capture everybody's experience. And when I just said, all right, fuck it, it's going to be my experience and I'm going to just take bits and pieces of things and change things, I reached a, a truer version of what I observed and what I felt. Did you feel differently about the experience after writing about it? Like, did it change the way you thought about that time? The thing that I, <clears throat> that I really noticed about it is all of those events felt much closer to me, even though some had happened 10 years in the past. I would talk to somebody who was on the same mission, and and I could just tell by the way that they phrased things, the way they talked about it, they just felt so much further away from it than I did. Like, it seemed to me all of these events had happened within the last six months because I was waking up every day and kind of putting myself back in that mindset and putting myself back in that landscape. So it brought me closer to it that way. It brought me a little bit of a better understanding, even though it's fictional. It helped me connect dots that, looking back on it, seemed to make sense. Did it um, make you more comfortable with what you had seen and what you had done or less comfortable? I don't know if it's just a function of age or whether, you know, it was the book. But the further I get from it, not the more comfortable I feel with it, just the more forgiving I am of myself, I guess, and others. Like I don't, I spend a lot of time beating myself up and just remembering the bad stuff and remembering, you know, what I did wrong and... Some of that was alleviated by writing the stories because, you know, there's what I see as humor in there, but also just, you know, making those connections and making making sense of it and putting something together that I'm like, okay, this at least has the right feel to it, I guess gave me a little bit of closure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's some real funny parts of the book. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I did a reading in uh, Albuquerque recently and people were laughing at parts I didn't think they would laugh at. So. I'm trying to tune the the funny meter on. <laughs> yeah, you think do you think there's like uh things that are only funny to you in there? Yeah. There's a story about it's called a Great Circle Route Westward Through Perpetual Night. It's about us losing a dog which actually happened first night of my second deployment. One of our own guys shot our team dog. And so the story is kind of like how that happened and what happens afterwards. 
and the chaplain plays a role in there. <laughs> and I think the chaplain is funny. Like my interactions with the chaplain are funny, I think. But the, uh, you know, and I was reading to an audience that I didn't really know that well. And I always assume that I'm offending people with that type of stuff. And they they weren't laughing at those parts. <laughs> it could have been it could have been because I was reading it kind of self consciously, knowing that well, I know these guys and I know they're religious and I respect that fact. But you know, this is still how I felt at the time. Whatever, I took the I took the humor right out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Who's the book for? I wrote it for. I mean, I dedicated it to my wife and my daughter and my son. And it's it really it is for them because. Like, they were with me the whole time. They saw me, you know, go through these changes. And, um, you know, I've seen them change over the years, too. And uh, I don't know how much of an impact I had being gone so much. I just kind of wanted to say, like, okay, here's what happened. You know, something you can take with you and hopefully understand. Still Kind of for the grandkids. Kind of, yes. <laughs> None yet. You know, my daughter's 19, my son's 17. All in due time. Yeah, yeah. Part of the reason I asked that, who, who the book is for, is that um, in case it's not abundantly obvious, like, I I have no idea what that experience is like. I got no feel for it at yeah. all. Zero. Makes two of us. Really? No, I mean... I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just a, it's such a jumble. And I say that it, you know, helps to make sense, but there are days when uh, you know, I wake up and still just wonder, like what are we still doing there? What it nothing's changed, you know? Well, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about. And I wondered whether there's so much in the book that gets at that repetition and the kind of just crazy making aspects of the routine and going back and the way that the start is the end and the end is the start and it never seems to actually move forward and I wonder what it's like for you to hear politicians and generals and and people even that further remove from war talk about it if you're asking about Trump it's very hard to (laughs) hear him I actually wasn't, but I'm interested in your answer. Yeah, it's, uh, well, just just in general, okay, so the, there's a lot of talk, or at least I pay attention to the talk about, like, military and civilian communication, and, um, you know, the thank you for your service type stuff, and there's definitely, there's a time when that graded on me. Why? (sighs) Because it seemed like so pat and so uh, rote and kind of, I mean, I've, I've come to think of it differently. People just don't know what else to say. And kind of my approach to it is like every, you know, everybody deals with some hardship, you know. So, and plus, like it was my job and I volunteered and you guys paid my salary while I was doing it and, you know, all this type of stuff. I don't think there should be. I mean, I appreciate the fact that there's gratitude. I I definitely do. The thing that I guess kind of gnaws at me is like whether or not people are taking responsibility for the things that we're doing in their name, if that makes sense. does a little bit, but help me understand it. So 
you know, the military is the, the idea is we follow the orders of our civilian bosses and the civilian bosses are elected officials. And that's like, you know, the way it's supposed to work. And it seems like that's broken now. It's not any one person's fault, but it does create a, like a separation and unreality between the two things. And like my service being in the Navy or, or, uh, and deploying and all that, there's a civilian component to that too. And that's paying attention to what's going on, being involved, understanding what you're asking of soldiers and airmen and Marines that are out doing the, the fighting and fresh from that fighting to get the feeling that people are disengaged or engaged only to the point where they will say these stock phrases to you. I thought at the time was insulting and I was wrong, but that's how I felt. And how do you feel about that gap or that unreality now? I just think people don't know what to say. I mean, I'm, you know, I'd be at a loss of words talking to somebody who's just lost their mother or lost their child to some, you know, random accident. I think about people, you know, who have to endure losing their kids in like a school shooting or something just equally horrific. And, you know, I don't see a whole lot of difference on like the scale of horror and pain there that's exclusive to veterans. I just, I kind of see it as universal. And so I'm way more lenient. I try to be more lenient and tolerant and understanding about it now than I was like when I was just coming out of the teams. When uh, you thought I was asking about Trump, has that changed in the last year and a half? No, I hate his guts. It just, he's an embarrassment. Like when he, he went to his prep school and marched around a little bit when he said, you know, he uh, knows more than generals. When he insults McCain, a guy who spent six years in the Noy Hilton, the Gold Star families that he's insulted. It's just, it runs so counter to the men and women that I know in the military and what what they respect and what our leaders were like that it's, uh, I can't understand how people get on board with that. How do you think it would feel if you were still active? I think it would be a little bit better probably because you can focus on what's happening. I mean, the decisions of the leadership definitely affect you, but however it shakes out, you still have something to do. And so, you know, so you're almost not, thinking about the politics. I feel like your whole book is an answer to this last question I want to ask you. And reading it was very powerful for me. Talking to you has been very powerful for me. Again, it's just, um, it's an experience that I, I don't have a lot of uh, appeal for. But I wondered as I was reading it and now talking to you, like if there's one thing that you would want people to know about war that they don't, what might that be? I don't know. I mean, the the idea that war is hell is pretty well known <laughs> at this point. But I suppose with this book, you know, I just wanted to kind of get at how, or maybe it wasn't my intention, but it seemed to be kind of an after effect, how technology affects what's going on, how we have so many advantages in certain ways how that literally like changes the landscape and the the entire image of war itself and how that might be affecting 
the people who fight. How is it affecting the people who fight? Well, I... <laughs> How did it affect you? It makes them write really weird books. <laughs> <laughs> makes them come home and write really weird books. Yeah. Thanks for writing a really weird book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern is Angela Velez. Thanks to them. Thanks to our sponsors. MailChimp continues to make this show possible. And also the new podcast, Breach. Check it out. It's about the world's biggest hacks. Uh, So thanks to them, but thanks most of all to Will Mackin. His book is called Bring Out the Dog, and uh, that is a conversation that I will not forget anytime soon. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.